When I first came across the incredible company We All Count, I was so struck by at once how simple the approach of data equity is and how powerful it is. And when I say simple, I do not mean easy. Heather Krauss at We All Count has created a framework that walks through all of these decisions that we make about how we use data, how we generate data, how we design data products, how we apply the findings of those data to our work, and has elevated all of that into a framework where we can be transparent and conscious of those decisions, rather than making those decisions subconsciously or in a dark room with not very many people involved, or even just without a full representation of all of the possibilities to ourselves and to others. Today, I am so incredibly lucky and honored to be joined by the founder of We All Count, Heather Krauss, to talk about what data equity is, why it is so critical that we all pay attention to it, whether or not we are the ones doing the data work, and how we can take steps forward to make our data more equitable, more transparent, and ultimately better, more effective, and actually more powerful and helpful than if we leave all of our decisions in the dark. Hello, and welcome to Heart, Soul, and Data, the podcast where we explore the human side of analytics to amplify the impact of nonprofits and social enterprises. With me, your host, Alexandra Mannering. I am honored today to be joined by an incredible expert who's going to talk about something that is near and dear to my heart, and I think is a topic we all need to think more about. So Heather, before we dive into data equity, can you introduce yourself for us? Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's really good to be here from one snowy place to another. And yeah, I, my name is Heather Krause. I'm coming to you today from Toronto, and I'm the founder of an organization called We All Count, which is a project for equity in data. And your organization, I think, does such important work because it brings to light things that we make decisions about and either don't admit we make decisions about or we don't even recognize that we make decisions about. So do you mind, though, because this is a topic that I don't think enough people have heard about, what do we even mean by data equity? I think you're right that it's it's uh, a topic that's pretty new for the general population. Of course, some people have been studying it for a long time, but um, in general, when we're working with quantitative data specifically or evidence uh, or research, um, there's this idea that uh, as long as it's a number, it's objective. And um, that, is, that is very much not true. All numbers, all quantitative evidence have embedded or centered in them a set of values or a set of worldviews. And in my opinion, data equity is... Uh, getting transparent and paying attention to what worldviews and value systems are centered in the way in the numbers <laughs> in the way that we generate research, and um, exactly what you were saying. Paying and we do that by paying attention to the choices that get made. I like also that you don't condemn the fact that we have a worldview because we can't not have a worldview. We have to perceive the world, but it's about bringing that into the light. It's about being transparent 
about how that worldview is influencing the numbers that you pick or the way that you analyze those numbers. So as a way of explaining why this is so important, do you have any good examples of where data equity has gone really wrong or rather there's data inequity, I should say? Oh my goodness. Well, first of all, absolutely. Uh, I don't think that it's it's a bug. <laughs> I think it's a feature, not a bug that uh, values and worldviews are embedded in in quantitative data. And I don't think that we should stop using quantitative data. Um, quite the opposite. I think the fact that a worldview or a value system is embedded in research or in data allows us to actually get the answers that we really need. <laughs> and so I think without um, doing our quantitative work through an equity lens, we are leaving way too much knowledge and value on the table. <laughs> and so I, I, I am a huge proponent of using quantitative data uh, and just using it really, really well. Uh, examples of things gone wrong. I have so many. <laughs> examples of things gone wrong. Um, but one of the things that we all count does very specifically is um, we never um, point out problems without offering at least some next step. And so I think the, the best example I have is from my own life. I mean, I really started working on data equity and, and thinking about we all count because of the the, the generous amount of mistakes I made. And, and when I uh, first started my career as a data scientist, um, I spent a lot of time doing statistical analysis and impact analysis and um, things like that in the global south. And I was born, raised, and educated in the global north. Um, it wasn't until I got on the ground, uh, my first job was in Bangladesh. And um, I had spent like probably a year uh, receiving data that the project was sending me and analyzing data and sending reports. And then I went to Bangladesh. And after about a day <laughs> of being in rural Bangladesh, uh, said, yeah, you better throw away um, all the analysis I've done because nobody told me in like 20 years of fancy education that it's not enough to just uh, put some numbers together and crank through an algorithm or statistical analysis. Um, and I, I was doing impact analysis specifically on whether or not a, a, uh, a learning training session was helping women get more milk from their cows. And the analysis that I did um, hid the fact that uh, that training program was working, but it was working, uh, one of the ways it was working, not the only way it was working, but one of the ways it was working was teaching women uh, to do activities that took like six to eight hours more a week. <laughs> and so the women were getting more milk from their cows, but they were like awake at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> um, and so that was an example of a model, a statistical model that was peer-reviewed, very scientific, very rigorous, and very centered around my external experience. And once I was on the ground and realized my mistake, we rebuilt the model uh, in a different way, a different mathematical way that put the variables together in a way that reflected the lived experience of the women who were actually the ones providing the data. And we got a completely different answer 
I think that that was a real turning point for me of like, yeah, not only is this like a nice to have, if you want an answer that is rigorous and reliable, you better pay attention <laughs> to the choices that are being made. Right. And so it would seem like it has nothing to do with with, with equity or giving everyone a voice to, to, to decide between, you know, are we going to measure total gallons of milk or are we going to measure total gallons of milk per hour? Yeah. Right. And they seem mathematically like, OK, they're just going to give us two different kind of perspectives, but they're they're the same. And in fact, no, from the data equity lens, they're not the same. One would re recognize the lived experience where the amount of time it takes to generate it is critical. And the other is looking at it from sort of the programmer's point of view, which is, well, we just want to maximize milk. Yeah, I think that's a really good way to say it. And equally important is the definition of success, right? If we're deciding if we're going to fund this program, right. if we're trying to answer the question, did this work? What model can answer that question is really different. So if you're just measuring straight up gallons of milk, yeah, maybe that worked, <laughs> but... <laughs> Not really. Right. And well, that, that brings up the, and, and we're going to get into this because I love your, your data equity framework, that step one is not the data. Step one's not the model. Step one is saying, you know, where, well, and you actually have steps before this, which I love, but, you know, I always talk about starting with the goal. You have to know what you're trying to achieve and how you right. define that is going to so fundamentally change how you measure it that, yes, you could basically go from saying this was a wild success to a complete failure just based on how you define what success looks like. Exactly. All right. Well, I would love if you're willing to dive into the data equity framework that We All Count has, because I think this is one of the most powerful frameworks I've read. So do you mind walking us through that? Yeah, sure. Thanks. Thanks for saying that. That's nice of you. And um, so the data equity framework was born because that there were a lot of people at all different levels um, of working with data decision makers, data analysts, data collectors, um, corporations, governments, um, that really genuinely wanted to align their equity goals with the way that they were using data, but had other than good intentions, no clue how to do it, because it's frankly not taught anywhere. We developed over a couple of years and have been testing and implementing something that we call the data equity framework, which is seven steps that can help you uh, figure out, essentially back to the beginning of our conversation, can help you figure out what choices you're making. That's the most important thing is to realize that you and everyone around you, everyone that touches your data product or your data service are making choices. And every single one of those choices prioritizes a specific worldview or value system. And that is the way <laughs> that you embed opinions and subjectivity into your results. And so the purpose of the seven-step data equity framework is to help you in a really grounded, concrete way, figure out where you are in your process and make choices. It doesn't actually tell you this is the recipe that you have to follow. It's more like these are the questions that you have to be able to answer. And it's seven steps. Uh, it starts at funding, which is really resource allocation and um, the power grid that is the foundation for your project, whether you want to talk about it or not. <laughs> and then it goes to motivation, which is what you refer to, where we get really clear about the purpose and what we mean when we say certain words. <laughs> and um, 
do we all agree on those words? Uh, if we're going to send a rocket to the moon, what does that word to mean? Does it actually mean to the moon and back? Because if we don't get aligned around these definitions, people are going to die. And the third step is project design, which is super operational. Um, some tools and checklists for um, does the design of your project match the equity goals of your project? And for me, really, project design step is really important because it's the one that you need if you're going to avoid heartache, like a, just a disaster project. Even if you don't care about equity, you really need to design your project in a way that it's going to do what it's supposed to do. Uh, and then we get to data collection, which is a very hot topic in data equity. And we point out some of the things that are super uh, intuitive to do, but can be disastrous if done naively. <laughs> we can actually use very well-intentioned social identity data collection to reproduce stereotypes like nobody's business. Uh, and then step five is analysis. And that's really what we were talking about, um, really digging deeply into the, the worldviews, the mental maps that are embedded in the way you use methodology. And um, then we move to interpretation, which is a step that almost everybody forgets about <laughs> because we're so trained as humans to stay alive by telling stories. And so as soon as we see a number, we tell a story about it. But if we slow down and say story from whose perspective, that's really useful. And then step seven, the last step in the, the seven steps is um, communication and distribution uh, so that you're, you don't drop the ball at the end. Honestly, I think we could spend an episode on every <laughs> single one of those steps because they're so important and there's so much in there. And I was saying, you know, I always start with motivation and I love that you've added this pre-step, which is, hang on, what's the power play here? And this is really yeah. important because you may look and say, you know, the, the most efficacious definition of success is this, but the people in power may be like, mm, that's not what we're looking for. <laughs> You know, and, and understanding that from the get-go of how that might drive all of the subsequent decisions is really important. Yeah, because it it does. Um, and But to your point about doing motivation first or funding first, um, the data equity framework is not a linear recipe. Like it really is a toolkit. So I always, I often teach it in, in a certain order, but I always have to emphasize, you know, it isn't a recipe. It's a I'm not sure if I had to do it again, I would use the word framework <laughs> um, because um, it's not designed to be something that replaces your current evidence generation process. It doesn't have to be done in order. It's not a recipe. Um, it's a layer that can be applied to your work as you already do it um, that just helps you elevate the choices that you're making and really stop leaving value on the table. It's a set of questions that you need to be asking and probably a set of questions that you need to be asking at all points of the process, not just asking them once in order, but asking each of them at every point in your whole process. So. Exactly. Yeah. And in the real world, lots of us have jobs or groups that really only work in one part. Like, you know, you, you might not have anything to do with the funding or the communication, or you might just be working with data that somebody hands you. Um, so it's enough to kind of figure out what are the choices you're making? Right. <laughs> 
And if we are all committed to this and the other yeah. people on those other parts are transparent about that, even if you're just handed the data set, you'll get also that metadata around it of how those choices were made and how that might influence what you're seeing for good or for bad, at least being aware of it. You know, as scientists, we're very comfortable with saying, here are the limitations. Like, I'm sorry, but this is the best I could do. But being transparent about those limitations is really what you're trying to call to the forefront with these questions. Yeah, I'm so happy you raised that because I really do think we need to find a better word than limitations because I don't actually, my experience is that we are not comfortable as scientific community talking about the limitations. I feel like it's pulling teeth <laughs> that, you know, you put the limitations in that your reviewers make you put in <laughs> or your ethics community makes you put in. But, and I don't really think, I think we really need to stop seeing them as limitations because to right. see them as limitations is to still... It's got a very negative connotation. It's, well, and it's to comply with the myth of objectivity, right? It's right. like, these are all the ways that this isn't the perfect scientific ideal of objective, which is for me, no longer a scientific, right. like I am trying to produce transparent, reliable science. <laughs> that's, that's a really great point that embedded in the idea of limitations is that this is what's keeping it from being the perfect objective truth. Right. What you're saying is rather than limitations, let's say this is the lens that I look through. Like these are the color of glasses yeah. I'm wearing because we're all going to wear glasses. So here, mine are today are, you know, charcuterie. Exactly. Tomorrow they're going to be magenta or whatever it might be. So. Exactly. Exactly. It's like, here is my soup and here are the ingredients that went into yeah. my soup. Not here is my soup. Um, sorry, it isn't, you know. <laughs> sorry, it came out as clam chowder instead of yeah. tomato bisque. <laughs> What are you talking about? So yeah, but I <laughs> hear a, you. <laughs> that, no, that's a that is a really good point. I, I really like that reframing of it, and and it brings up again these embedded assumptions that we forget we're even making. And and I think for your interpretation one again that people forget that we do this step, and I've had this happen so many times. Like for example, I was doing an analysis on hospital funding and ex like the way that they spent their money. And I was looking at, you know, okay, here's how much is on overhead or here's how much, you know, there was 20% that was spent on capital and building. And the person was like, I knew they were spending, you know, they were building too much. And I said, no, no, I just said it was 20%. <laughs> She's like, yeah, I know. That's what I said. And it was funny how <laughs> yeah. like seamlessly we went from here is a number. It was 20%. And, and there's all of the other stuff of how we decided to calculate it and why we were looking at those components, you know, to your framework point. But then she, you know, the person I was talking to could so seamlessly go from the 20% to, well, that's too much without realizing that she had made a judgment call about yeah. it being too much. Right. Yeah. And that's really, I mean, I really think that that's um, contributing, uh, like us as scientists, not distinguishing between a result and an interpretation is really contributing in part uh, to a growing mistrust of science. Like we aren't being honest. <laughs> like people say, you know, don't you think your work is contributing to the climate deniers? And I'm like, no, actually, I think my work is helping scientists stop contributing to the work of climate deniers because part of this is our fault and we can do better. Wait, and why do people say that you're contributing to climate deniers? Well, because if I say something like, um, you know, research isn't value neutral, 
And they're like, see, <laughs> don't say that the climate deniers. And I'm like, yeah, your fear about that is why we have climate deniers. I mean, not entirely, but that's a piece of the pie, of course. So I could see why someone would say that. And they are completely wrong. You're absolutely right that when we don't differentiate between science and scientist. Yes. We, I did an experiment and I got this result. And then I need to translate that result into something that we can apply. But that translation step, if we don't admit that I did it, in fact, that's why I've gone on a campaign to be like, I will never write another scientific paper in third person. Yeah. Right? It should be, I did this so that people recognize that a human did it and we're fallible. Oh, I'm so glad you brought that up pronouns in uh pronouns in the communication of science is is really cool really cool to watch um how people write things and from whose point of view you can tell so much about what is has gone into the generation process of evidence by looking at the pronouns in the right like it was it was done you're like by, by whom or they <laughs> but and i think around that as well, you know, and it's tied to the the project design and the motivation and the power structures and everything that also, if we fail to separate the science from the scientists where they're like, if you disagree with my findings, like you disagree with me. And therefore, like, you know, and I was saying, I've, I've sort of been disappointed in Fauci lately, because it's moved from such a great presentation of, of the facts and, and our uncertainties to, well, if you don't agree with me, like you're disagreeing with the science. And again, it feels like it kind of grazed that area of, hang on, no, 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 this, this is what people are talking about. We want to be able to disagree with how you may have come to that conclusion without it being, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah. Watching the communication of science during the pandemic in the US was one of my hobbies for a while, but then I stopped. So I don't really know. I don't really, I can't really comment on that because I'm not in the American uh experience because <laughs> you you saved yourself probably a bottle of tums and so much aspirin uh, my husband's british and i did the same thing i finally like stopped paying attention to american news and just watched the bbc because again it was they do a better job of being like here are the findings here's what we think about it here's when sometimes the scientists disagree about what that means so Yes, you didn't miss anything at all. Yeah. Well, you know, science in a pandemic is hard. So it is. It is. There's there, and that's a whole other, yeah. other show for it. <laughs> that's a whole um, other show. Yeah. Right. So, so one of the other things that that also stood out to me with your data collection, and this slides a little bit into the analysis piece as well, is all of these great questions about this, like how our technical tools align with the human ethics and values. And it can be one like something is like privacy, right? How do we get at information we need while respecting people's privacy? Or, you know, how do we help provide important, reliable data on groups that are very small? And so I, I've worked with some native scholarship programs and they talk about the tyranny of the asterisk and that how native people are so often just left out of all of these demographic studies because they get the little asterisk that says not enough data to report. Absolutely. That that is that is nothing but a bad scientific habit. That that's not good science. It's not good human humanity. It's not good communication. It's just not good. Um, no, I'm not saying it's not coming from a or wasn't ever coming from a good place. Of course, privacy is important. I'm in favor of privacy, um, but uh, there's no scientific test. <laughs> 
prepare for emails now. There is no scientific test for the statistical significance of a sample size. <laughs> and so when you suppress the results of a sample size with the words not statistically significant accompanied by an asterisk, uh, you, you are not scientifically correct. Now, I'm not saying that you should always make meaning from that, um, but, but it's a question of uncertainty. It's not a question of significance. Yeah. And it's a question of uncertainty um, whose responsibility lies firmly on the researcher. And so if, if, if you have designed uh, a report that um, has a level of uncertainty around a population that you feel uncomfortable reporting, you need to say that. There's a big difference between saying, um, we're not gonna give uh, the, the average or whatever it is that you're measuring for the First Nations population because they're not statistically significant. <laughs> that is super problematic and false scientifically to uh, we're not gonna give the, the findings for the, the First Nations group um, because uh, the sample size was too small to be reliable, better, maybe more scientifically accurate, but still putting the onus, putting the choice in the wrong place. The choice is being made by the data collection people and by the analysts and by the communicators. So um, we are not going to report our findings about First Nations people in this report uh, because we have chosen to design a project where uh, the data collection processes and the analysis process um, did not provide a reliable a, a result and so that we're going to say. And so that's like, and it, people look at me like, we're not going to say that. I'm like, yeah, you really should. And and it's the truth and it's scientifically accurate and it puts the onus where it should be. I mean, there is no way that we, we want to, it's about risk, right? Like people often don't want to report results from small sample sizes in their findings because they don't want to incur the risk or they don't want to admit to the uncertainty. So instead, the researcher who not always, but frequently is a person in a position of privilege, is transferring all of that risk to that population who is probably small because it is marginalized. I would refer everyone listening to this podcast to Abigail Echohawk, who is really uh, the person that I rely on, the thinker, uh, Pawnee, director of um, the Urban Indian Institute, I think for health uh, in Seattle. Uh, great, great presentations on this. You can find them on YouTube, Abigail Echohawk. Um, but yeah, like if we're putting boxes out and expecting people to sort them into their boxes and then reprimanding people for not somehow getting enough people into that box, like that is a problem. <laughs> and it's not their problem. It's right. the researcher's problem. Like, I love that. You didn't get enough people for my box. Right. That replace all statistically insignificant sample size with asterisk. We didn't try hard enough to get the right Ex people. Exactly. We didn't bother to do this. <laughs> and then, but I should say, because there's definitely people listening to this that are like, we didn't collect the data. We were handed the data. It's not our fault. And to that, I say, yes, I hear you. And if you really genuinely want to move the needle on that, if that isn't meeting your needs, 
then your job is to report whose decision it was. So if you're using social identity data, you need to report four things. First of all, who got to name the categories? Secondly, what categories were there? Um, and that is something that I hear so often that, you know, well, the such and such organization or such and such national institute or such and such accreditation body is the one that determines the categories and we're just using them. And I say, okay, well, if you want to move the needle on that, every time you use them and they don't meet your needs, you need to put in writing in that report, these categories were defined by this and this organization uh, we'd prefer to be using and then write out what you would prefer to be using because you're not going to move the needle on that until there is consistency and transparency about who has the power here because there are people that have power here right someone made that decision yeah <laughs> it's not just like they didn't just fall from the sky right. on carved yeah. stone tablets exactly yeah i don't want to make any kind of a religious reference but yeah <laughs> honestly though sometimes that's how people treat this they get so yes. dogmatic about it when they're like, well, that's just how it is. And you're like, no, no, no. Some person right. in, a, in a cubicle somewhere right. made a decision about that. And like, right. the more that we like pull back that curtain and yes. are honest that that's what's happening, the more we can get to a place where those decisions help us instead of hinder us. Exactly. And my experience on this particular topic is that the person or team of people who did decide on those boxes... Um, a, probably isn't there anymore, and B, probably isn't nearly as resistant to change as you think. Uh, they just aren't hearing consistently from enough people that they would like the change, and this is what they would like the change to be. And the benefit of that change. And the benefit of that change. That needle is not nearly as hard to move as we think. I've seen that needle move many times recently with surprising ease. That's a really great point. All right. So I think anyone listening to this is going to be very convinced how important and, and how essential <laughs> and also how attainable this is, right? We're not talking about completely overhauling everything you're doing. We're talking about asking a few questions and maybe changing what you write after the asterisk, right? <laughs> These are attainable things. But I was wondering if we could get a little bit more specific of how organizations could actually get started you know, actionably with implementing a, a data equity framework, because this is, is probably new to most people. Yes, yes, for sure. Um, yeah, so I would say the first thing to do is start socializing the idea with yourself <laughs> and then with those close to you um, that the choices that we make, the, the habits, I wouldn't even think of them as choices because very few people think of them as choices. The habits that we have, the hidden choices that we're making are incredibly powerful. And if we really want rigor, accuracy, and usefulness in whatever it is we're doing with data, whether you're a big company trying to you know build an app or whether you're a tiny little nonprofit trying to provide services, if you really want that, um, the first thing you need to do is start identifying the habits and the hidden choices that you're making. You don't need to do a big overhaul. That is, you know, that is one of the things we discourage <laughs> is small um, sustainable wins are the way to go, <laughs> not some kind of radical overhaul. I mean, unless you really have an organization that's change ready and well-resourced, I mean, then for sure. 
But um, if you if you um, can can start by identifying the choices, and I recommend even people just setting an alarm, setting alarm on your phone, setting your alarm on your computer, setting your alarm on your watch, whatever it is. Um, and when that alarm goes off, you just stop and you notice what you're doing. And you notice what choices are being made, even if they don't feel like choices, even if they feel incredibly obvious, because it's the things that feel incredibly obvious to us that are equity issues <laughs> to other people. And just write them down, like really just get yourself or your team to write down some choices. Um, and then, then uh, once you've started noticing your choices, then you just want to brainstorm, like, what are the other possibilities? And we recommend that in that brainstorm, you really don't try and only think of things that you can do. Um, this, the first step isn't about what you can do on a practical level. The first step after you've started making choices is open your mind, get out of your box, get out of your habits, especially if you are a conventionally trained scientist. You have, if your education has been anything like mine, I mean, in my education, I'm very grateful for it, but it, in terms of teaching me about um, all these rituals, there's a big difference between the elements that are essential to rigorous science and the rituals of science that serve to kind of meet the needs of people who are long, long gone. <laughs> um, and that the more you can distinguish what, what's elemental and critical to you producing rigorous science and what is just a ritual or an, you know, a, a fancy habit that somebody taught you to make you feel less vulnerable. Or to maintain the myth of objectivity, right? That, or the, that, that scientists can somehow be objective if we just do these, these four things. Well, and what I love that you're separating out, and, and I think that sometimes that, that phrase, and I used it, like the myth of objectivity gets a little bit misplaced sometimes because it can also be used to try to then say, well, then there's no point to data or science. Right, that somehow the, the data, they're not going to help. They're just as subjective as us. So what's the point? And so like, I do want to clarify exactly what you said at the beginning, that we're just saying, what are the things that we as humans are choosing to do that aren't actually contributing to the power of the data or they're misleading us in some way? And how can we actually advance our rigor by bringing in new ways of making these decisions? And like you said, not just holding on to the ways we've sort of ritualistically done things. Absolutely. The, the process of mathematics is objective. The application of mathematics is not objective. <laughs> the scientific method is objective. The application of the scientific method is never objective. Exactly. And that's not a bad thing. That's, that's a good thing. Because we need to, that's sort of, if nothing mattered, we wouldn't need science anyway. Like if we had no value, then we didn't care about anything. Right. <laughs> We'll go full Nietzsche. <laughs> exactly. No, I think that that's really helpful. Um, the last question that I had for you is that if you're an organization that's very small or really you don't feel like you have any intentional analytics or intentional data mm -hmm. programs, would you change your advice on how to do this? Or can this be applied pretty much no matter your size, no matter your capacity, because you know, yeah. we're all sort of doing this to some extent anyway? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think this 
in our experience, um, this applies to if you're just a human and people are, you know, you're a human that wants to make a decision based on data or based on somebody's research, or you, you, you know, you're a giant fancy corporation running, you know, neural networks and predictive algorithms and, or, you know, you're, you're a coffee growing nonprofit in Papua New Guinea with three people and certainly uh, no, you know, analytics team. We are almost all being asked to either create, interact with, or make decisions based on data. And I just think it would probably improve your quality of life if you learned to recognize the places that you are making choices and harness the power of those choices, whether you're a data creator, whether you are a person completing surveys, whether you're a person um, doing analysis, whether you're a person, you know, reading the news. I, I definitely agree with you. And it's interesting because I've, I've been thinking a little bit more about how we talk about, you know, intuition versus data driven decisions. And I was like, but if we think about what intuition is, it's basically your first response, usually based on a history of experiences, where you weighed those experiences and then said, if I compare this current one to those past experiences, I think X or Y, which is data analysis, right? Intuition is yeah. like quick, quick data analysis to some extent without a spreadsheet. So to your point that this just helps people be cognizant of how they're making their decisions if they're made on anything other than like flipping a coin. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think that the difference between like an individual trying to, you know, make an intuitive choice based on a lifetime of experience is that most data analysis is trying to take that process and scale it. Yes. <laughs> right. We do statistical analysis because we take the information we have and can understand about um, a small part of a person or a population or the world. And then we um, use that to kind of understand what is going on or what could go on. And so, yeah, so I do think it's valuable. It feels like data equity is sort of an extension of that. If intuition is sort of built in ways of processing it and data analytics is saying, okay, let's let's make a structure out of this so we can consciously see how we're doing this. And then your data equity framework then basically takes that and says, okay, let's make sure we're being conscious about the conscious decisions that we're making on, on our data. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, well, I want to be very respectful of your time. You have given so much today and so much incredible insight, and I have certainly enjoyed every second of this conversation. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for having me. And um, I'm really uh, looking forward to uh, hearing what what people think and uh, listening to all your other episodes. Thanks for your, your great uh, production of interesting and cool podcasts about data. Thank you so much. That was Heather Krauss from We All Count. And if you only take one thing away from this episode, I really hope it is that distinction between the scientist and the scientific method, between the mathematics and the mathematician, and that the fact that we as humans can't be objective because we are subjective creatures is one, not a bad thing, and two, does not mean that then the work we do, like science and data and mathematics, can't be objective and helpful. 
where we get ourselves in trouble is that when we try to take our choices, our values, our judgments, and say, that's not what I said, that's actually what the science says, or that's, we have to do it this way because that's what the math requires. Heather actually has a great poster in her office that says, don't tell me what the data say. Data doesn't say bleep, we say things. And that's the point, is that we have to interpret data to make them useful. And that interpretation is done through our lens. So we can do many things to make our data more accurate, more insightful, more useful. And we just need to be aware of those choices that we're making. It's not that we need to stop making those choices. It's not necessarily that the choices we've been making are wrong. It's just that we often make those choices without paying attention to them and paying attention to the consequences of some of those choices. So thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. If you did, would you mind giving us a rating? Because that helps people find the podcast. If you like it, people can see that you like it and they might be more likely to listen and discover something interesting too. Thank you so much for your time and take care. You have been listening to Heart, Soul, and Data. This podcast is brought to you by Moroccanus, an analytics education, consulting, and data services company devoted to helping nonprofits and social enterprises amplify their impacts and thrive through data. You can learn more at moroccanos.com, M-E-R-A-K-I-N-O-S.com.